Good morning, and Happy New Year. I um, <clears throat> was struck this past week by the words that were spoken by an admiral in the Chinese Navy. <clears throat> and even though here we are in a, in a new year, and I'm hoping we all have a, a great new year, I'm excited about what's to come in this this upcoming year. As a matter of fact, in that vein, I do want to make uh, one quick announcement. Um, our children's ministry director, Jody Johnson, is moving from a, a part-time position to a full-time position this year. And yes, that's something to clap about. She does an amazing job, and uh, we want her doing more of it. So I'm thankful that we can do that. But there were some words spoken uh, by a, an admiral in the Chinese Navy. There's been this ongoing dispute between China and Taiwan. Some of you are probably familiar with this. If you're not, it's this idea of the Taiwanese sovereignty. China's upset over the fact that Taiwan has basically set themselves up as a sovereign nation apart from and out from underneath Chinese rule. So they're constantly sort of saber-rattling over this. They want Taiwan to come back under Chinese rule. The United States has vowed that they would militarily back up Taiwan so that they can maintain their independent democracy. <clears throat> well, as a result of that, uh, this sort of saber-rattling, this speech came from a Chinese admiral this past week. This was um, on one of the, the news websites I'm constantly looking at. But... Uh, he said this, he said, what the United States fears the most is taking casualties. That was what Admiral Liu of the Chinese Navy declared. And he said the loss of one supercarrier would cost the U.S. the lives of 5,000 servicemen and women. Then he went on to say that sinking two would double the number. After that, he said, we'll see how frightened America is. Now, this was upsetting to read. Uh, clearly, that was designed to cause Americans to be afraid about what could happen, about the future, about our continued involvement. And it got me thinking. You know, whether it's a torpedo in the side of your ship or a bullet, or heart disease, or even just old age, at some point, death comes for us all. What moves me as I read the testimonies of those who lived during times of great persecution is how many Christians, with complete courage and bravery, were able to go forward they were able to face the lions in the Colosseum. They were able to face those wild animals in the arena. They were able to go to the stake and to the flames with complete confidence and complete courage and complete bravery. And I don't know about you, but I've often wondered, how is it going to come for me? What's it going to look like? Do I have 10 more years, 20 more years, 50 more years? 
we really don't know. But how can we go forward and face this very real subject of death with courage and with bravery? That's what we're going to be talking about today. So, Happy New Year. <laughs> I don't think this is going to be as somber a sermon as you think it's going to be. But we're going to continue on now. We'll be in Philippians. We're going to go back into the book of Philippians. I was uh, there just before Christmas. We're going back into it. We'll be working our way through Philippians up until Easter. And the text this morning is Philippians chapter 1. And we'll be in verses 18 uh, through 26. Philippians 1 verses 18 through 26. And if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is Paul speaking. And he says, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. For your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. You may be seated. So this morning, we're going to work our way uh, through this part of Philippians. And um, we're going to see three things. We're going to see how Paul, sitting in a prison, facing a trial, potentially facing his own death, is able to draw such confidence and such power. And we're going to look at three ways that he did that and three ways that we can do that when we need courage. It could be courage facing death, but honestly, it's courage really facing any hardship in life. So again, we're going back to the book of Philippians. And if you can think back before Christmas, we had two sermons on Philippians before we got to this point. I would be so impressed. I had to go back and check my notes to see what I preached on Philippians 1 before Christmas. In Philippians 1, 1 through 11, I talked about how to live out the gospel uh, by supporting gospel laborers, abounding in discerning love. And you could summarize Philippians there in the, in the very beginning by saying it's about loving and learning for living, how to prosecute life. Then in verses 12 through 18, we talked about how to make Christ known uh, by looking for opportunities to share the gospel, by knowing the gospel well enough to be able to share it. And this morning now, we're going to look at verses 18 through 26. And we'll actually pick it up in the latter part of verse 18. Paul speaking here, and this starts a new sentence in verse 18, and he says, Yes, I will continue to rejoice. So he's rejoicing in the previous set of verses because the gospel's being preached. People were doing it with wrong motives, he says. They said, I don't care. Because they're preaching the gospel. And he says, I'm going to continue to rejoice. 
Now, why is he continue, continuing to rejoice? We see it in verses uh, 19 and 20. And he says, Therefore, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but will with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, there's a lot happening here in these verses. So keep in mind that Paul is in prison and at first glance at verse 19, he's saying that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my what? My, he says, deliverance. And he's using this word sotira, and it's oftentimes translated salvation. But what is it that Paul's thinking he's going to be delivered from? Because he's not confident that he's going to live or die. He's not sure about that. But the context of the next verse, the verse after that, reveal um, he, he's not concerned about physical deliverance. Hold that thought for just a moment. He's in prison. He's facing a trial. And he's attributing these two things to help him. First, he says, it's through your prayers. And then next, he says, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now, those two things are very closely linked. And Paul believes that he's going to use these prayers of the Philippians, that the Lord is going to use those prayers, and through that, Paul will be given sufficient courage to be able to face everything that he's facing right now. And it's a lot. Some of you may have faced death before, but I'm guessing most of us have not. Paul's entire conversation, by the way, up to this point, has been about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So then what does he mean when he says the Spirit of Jesus Christ? Is he talking about the Holy Spirit? And he gives more insight into that in additional verses. If we look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says, And because you are sons, sons there meaning Christian, adopted sons of God, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our heart, crying, Abba, Father. That word Abba is an Aramaic word. It means, means dad. It's a very intimate word for dad. Some have even translated that daddy before as a, as a child calling out to his father. So Paul's saying here to the Galatians, because you are sons, you are an adopted child of God. And this spirit of his son is a reference to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. By the way, the Holy Spirit is a he. He's a he. He's not an it. He's a he. And he's the third person of the Trinity. And he was sent into your heart. The Holy Spirit then moves the believer to prayer. You know, there are so many things that we believe in our own experience that we're doing by our own power. But there is so much going on supernaturally behind the scenes even when we go to the Lord in prayer. And it can seem so arbitrary, can't it? It can seem so kind of haphazard, and I'm just kind of spouting off things off the top of my head, but there's actually something very different going on in the spiritual realm when we pray. As a matter of fact, Paul's going to go into this further in Romans 8. And he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, now what, what does this mean? Now, some people have taken that to mean that the individual is the one groaning too deep for words, but actually that's not the case. See, it's the Holy Spirit that is groaning too deep for words. Scripture talks about creation groaning. And the Holy Spirit is the one that's sort of carrying our prayers up to the throne room of the Father. He's interceding for us. He's making our prayers known to God the Father. And he's doing it with these these groanings. He's identifying with the deep pain that you and I have. We don't even fully understand the depth of our pain as well as God himself does. So if you don't know what to pray, take heart. God is working for you, even in the act of prayer. So all this is going on every time we simply pray. So for Paul, there's this deep dependency, and I'll even add an expectation of what the Holy Spirit is going to do for him in this situation. He's counting on it through the work of the prayers of the people, but ultimately it's the Holy Spirit that's doing the work. And he's bringing this confidence and boldness. And what is he so bold about anyway? And we see it in verse 20. He says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. You know, Paul's ultimate concern is how he's going to die in the sense of How will the gospel be made known through my death? He's got no concern for himself in comparison to how concerned he is about the exaltation of Christ above all things. Whether it's by his living, whether it's by his dying, he needs the power of the Holy Spirit to give him the courage so he doesn't recant, for example. So when he does face the lions, if he does face the flames that he's going to have the courage to stay true to what he believes all the way to the end. Now, where does this kind of confidence come from? In 1986, if you're a baseball fan, you're you're really going to dig this. Um, Roger Clemens, he was a right-hander for the Boston Red Sox, was in an all-star game. And he went up to bat. To be honest, he wasn't a great batter. Um, but he went up to bat, and um, he, he, was, he was standing there, and Dwight Gooden was a pitcher, and he just struck him out with these fastballs he had, just, just like that. And he turned around, and he looked at the catcher and said, do I throw fastballs like that? And the catcher said, yeah. And he went, and he threw three perfect innings after that. See, once he had witnessed the power of the fastball, once he had seen it in action and what it could do, it gave him this boldness and this confidence of what was capable and what could happen when he got up there on the pitcher's mound. Do we approach the Holy Spirit in prayer in a similar way? You know, I did the math yesterday. We have, in, in our services right now, on any given Sunday, we've got about, about 450 to 500 people on a pretty consistent basis. 
Uh, let's say that just 300 people here decided that over the next few years, they were going to share the gospel with just one person a month. Okay, just one person. That'd be 3,600 people a year in Sheridan would hear the gospel. Do you know that we could evangelize the entire town of Sheridan in, in 4.7 years? Do you ever think about what God could do through this church if we really believe the power that was available by prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit? What could we do as a church? What could we accomplish as we depended and prayed for the kind of power and the, and the kind of confidence that Paul is displaying here while he's in prison? I don't even think we've began to touch what is possible. The work that God could do through this church as we're depending on the power of the Holy Spirit through prayer. So first of all, depend on the Holy Spirit through prayer. This is our first way of finding courage. We see it here. Uh, we see it here as Paul is facing death. And we could realize it in our own lives. Courage to share the gospel with somebody. Courage to even speak publicly. Courage even to face our own death. We move now to verses 21 through 23. And what does Paul say? He says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Now, I have always been moved by the mystery of this, this passage. Uh, that, that Paul feels that he's got two good choices between living and dying. Now, I would tend to lean towards the living part. But not Paul. He's got this, again, this astounding confidence that, man, I'd sure like to just die and be with Jesus. Where is that coming from? You know, Paul um, has had an interesting experience, actually, about 14 years prior to this. And he talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses uh, 2 through 4. And he says this. He's talking about himself. He says, I know a man in Christ, again, he's talking about himself, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now, the third heaven is a reference to that place where Christ dwells now, where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. The first heaven would be like the, the blue sky with the clouds. The second heaven would be like, the, this, like space with stars and planets. So the third heaven is a reference to, to paradise, where, where we go when we die, where our spirit goes when we die. And he goes on and says, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows, which is, we're, that's got an, a, a freakiness all its own there. But he says, and I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Again, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Wow. 
he's talking about this heavenly some people talk about an out-of-body experience. Paul's saying, I don't even know if it was an out-of-body experience. I, my whole body could have been transcended up there. But I can't help but think that this is also part of this confidence he has about what's to come. Uh, he's now speaking this to Philippians. You know, I believe that if each one of us could just spend one second in paradise where Paul was, that we would be utterly dissatisfied and bored with every part of our existence. Nothing in this life would ever measure up to that one second experience we would have in this place called paradise. Now, I'll confess, um, for a lot of my life, I, I believe I had a pretty low view of heaven. Um, and frankly, I think a lot of people have this, this sort of fear, this kind of underlying anxiety that they're going to be bored with heaven. Uh, I remember singing that song as a child. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll have no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. And as a kid, I thought, well, I want to sing for 10,000 years? I mean... Is that what this heaven thing is all about? And again, I've, I've, I'm not alone in this. Um, I came across, there's, there's a section of a book uh, called The Resurrection in You. It was written by Sean McDowell. That's the son of Josh McDowell. And he talks about this a little bit more. And you may have heard the science fiction writer Isaac Asimov. He said this uh, about heaven. He said, I don't believe in the afterlifes, so I don't have to spend my whole life fearing hell. Or fearing heaven even more. For whatever the tortures of hell, I think the boredom of heaven would be even worse. Now, in that same book, uh, Sean McDowell says this. <clears throat> he says, Our vision of heaven is often limited to an extended, boring, uninspiring church service. No comments. Many see it as a place where we will mosey about among clouds in long white gowns while strumming on harps. Somehow, our image of heaven has become grotesquely distorted, and the prospect of life after death has not captured our imaginations or transformed our lives. Now, Sean McDowell is a teacher, and he talked to his, his class about this. And he asked his class, he said, if you found out that you were about to die and go to heaven, how would you want to spend your remaining days? And he said they gave the standard answers. They said, well, they want to go skydiving, traveling, surfing, and, of course, a couple other things. You probably know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and then he followed up with a simple question. He said this. He said, so you think there may be pleasures and experiences in this life that if you don't do them before you die... You will, miss out on all, you will miss out on altogether because they won't exist in heaven. All but two students answered yes, that the prospect of heaven dismayed and disappointed them. Let me tell you something. This is such a lie from the pit of hell that heaven in any way would be inferior to our current existence that's a lie. That is such a lie. Uh, Paul's going to say in 1 Corinthians 2.9, he, he actually quotes Isaiah when he says this. 
things that no eye has seen or ear heard or mind imagined are the things God has prepared for those who love him. I don't care how good the earthly experience is, it's going to be far inferior to anything we will ever experience in heaven. There was a wonderful sermon that was by Jonathan Edwards where he outlines a few reasons to talk specifically about why heaven won't be boring. Um, and I'm going to give you two of my favorites from this sermon by Jonathan Edwards. Um, first, he says, you will have a greater capacity for joy. Um, you, you see, part of that is because after we're resurrected, first of all, so when we die, our spirit goes to heaven, our body stays on earth until Christ returns and resurrects our bodies. Well, when our body is resurrected, it's going to be way better than anything we have right now. I mean, we're going to be stronger and smarter. We'll be completely free from any encumbrances of sin or whatever effect sin has had on our bodies. We'll be way better. So our capacity to enjoy things will be much, much higher. We'll have this greater capacity. As a matter of fact, he says this about that. He says, our earthly soul had only a little spark of divine love in it. In heaven shall be, as it were, turned into a bright and ardent flame, like the sun in its fullest brightness when it has no spot upon it. In other words, our, we, we've never even experienced love yet. We've never even experienced joy yet, like what we're going to get in heaven. I don't care how wonderful the experience may have been, how well-loved you may have been. It's nothing compared to what you're going to experience when you get to heaven. Amen. Now, just in case you may be thinking, well, yeah, but what, what happens when I reach that, that capacity, right? My capacity will be greater, but what about when that gets full? Well, he's got an answer for that, too. He says, you will have an ever-increasing capacity for joy. You're not going to just top off because your ability to enjoy things is going to get higher and higher. He said it like this. He said, enraptured with joys that are forever increasing and yet forever full. So it's like your joy bucket just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, when does it stop? We're talking about an infinite God. How long does it take to unravel the mind of an infinite God? This is why only God can satisfy for all eternity. We will be ever-changing in heaven. Heaven will be constantly presenting itself to an ever-changing mind. I'm going to illustrate it kind of like this. One of my very favorite movies is Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, Indiana Jones going after the Ark of the Covenant. I first saw that movie when I was about, I was about six, seven years old. And I love, you know, I just loved Indiana Jones. I mean, he was the epitome of cool with the bullwhip and the fedora. I mean, the whole nine yards. Now I had no idea what, what a German was or a Nazi was. You know, the whole movie's about him racing the Germans before World War II to find the Ark of the Covenant. Well, I didn't, know what I, I didn't know what a Nazi was. But you know what? As I got older and I started learning about World War II, well, all of a sudden I started enjoying this movie in a different way. 
And as you get older, you enjoy it in a different way. You enjoy it more. This is a picture of what will be happening in eternity in heaven. It'll never get boring. Everything on this earth will get boring, but heaven will never get boring. You'll have this ever-increasing capacity. This is why it will never get old. So how do we face death with courage? Depending on the Holy Spirit through prayer. Then second, expecting the glory of heaven. There's nothing on earth that really compares. We don't have any idea what's in store for us. And then we get to the final uh, three verses, starting with verse 24. Paul says, But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. See, Paul is convinced that he's going to make it through this. Now, we really don't know how. We can only assume that God has revealed this to him, that he's going to survive this trial. He's going to make it through this. He's going to get out of prison. And he also knows by his release, he's going to return to the Philippians, that they're going to progress in the faith, that they're going to grow as Christians, and that they're going to experience great joy. All this to say, Paul sees this as continuing to live in Christ. Paul sees that continuing to live actually is Christ. But he's, because he's going to be busy about the work that Christ has given him to do. He's going to be suffering just like Christ did. And he's going to die just like Christ did. And he doesn't see this as a bad thing. It's not as good as being in heaven. But you see, he felt a little hard-pressed between the two because he saw good things that would happen by remaining. So he's convinced that he's going to remain He's still got work to do. Do you know how you know that God still has work for you to do? <laughs> You're here, right? Someone said that the pastor would have held you under the baptismal waters till you went into eternity if you did not have more work to do. I'm not going to do that, by the way. Don't, 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 don't freak out. There was an article written about these, uh, these pickup softball games that were happening in Chicago. Among senior citizens, people in their 60s and 70s that still wanted to get out, still wanted to play softball. Only when they were playing under the heat, one of the people, that, the guy that was writing the article said that the thing about these older folks playing softball was they didn't suffer from strained muscles, they were suffering from things like heart attacks. <laughs> and they interviewed one of the guys, his name was ironically Bill Body. And he explained why it was he played. He said, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die doing what I love doing, whether it's playing softball, fishing, hunting, or something else. You know, we're often tempted in the church to slow down. We're tempted to say, you know what? I've paid my dues. I've done my work. But... There's still work to do. And it's risky. You run the risk emotionally doing ministry. You run the risk spiritually of, of messing something up. I'm well aware that every time I stand on this stage, 
I have the opportunity to just open my mouth and let the dumb fall out. <laughs> I get it. It can happen. But you know what? Life itself is a risk. You got out of bed. It was risky driving here. I've driven on these snowy roads. All of life is a risk. So why not take risks for the Lord? Why not do the work that he's given you to do? Because there is still work to do. We need volunteers in the children's department. Did you, did you see all those kids up here on stage at Christmas time? There were 65 kids. We've got about 120 kids on the rosters. And we need help. This might be the year that you need to sign up and help with children's ministry. This might be the year that you need to step out and take a risk. Yeah, I'm excited about where this church is going. As a matter of fact, after Easter, I'm going to start talking about where I believe God might be leading us in terms of mission and vision. And this church has been doing wonderful things. But we need people taking risks. We need help. Because the truth is, we don't know how long we have. We had a young man in our church this past week who got very, very sick. And to be frank, it was pretty scary. If you kept up with the prayer reports on, on Seth Molnax, praise be to God, he's doing well now. A group of us came together and prayed for him one night. And by the grace of God, he's doing better. But the truth is, we don't know how long we have. And one of the best ways we can prepare to meet Jesus is to be living for him right now. So that if and when, it's really when he takes us home, unless he were to return, he can look at each one of us and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Isn't that what we're living for? To hear those words on that day that is coming? So these three things, finding courage by depending on the Holy Spirit through prayer, expecting the glory of heaven, and finally living for Christ now. And in closing, I want to mention a story um, about a man, a man named Thomas Hawks. And he lived in the mid-1500s, and he was very well thought of. He lived in England. Uh, he worked in the king's court for a while, in the court of King Edward. He was very well thought of. However, when King Edward left the office of the kingship, another king came along. <clears throat> the next king uh, enforced a Roman Catholic England. So those who were reformed were in great danger. While he was working in the king's court, uh, he got married, and he actually went back to his hometown when the new king assumed his role, and he and his, and his wife had a, a son, a single son. Well, he delayed the baptism of his son because he didn't want his son baptized in the Roman Catholic Church. And when his enemies found out about this, they brought the matter before the bishop, Regardless of their best efforts to get him to recant, they were unable to do so. So he found himself in a position where he was going to be burned at the stake. Now his friends came to him when they realized this was going to happen. They were terrified. A lot was unknown at the time. And they approached him and they said, Could you give us some sign of the grace of God so that we know that even in the middle of the flames we can rise above the hurt and know that God's grace is sufficient. So they asked them this. They wanted to know that even from the flames, someone could not despair. And he promised. This is what he said to them. 
He said, by the help of God, to show them that the most terrible torments could be endured in the glorious cause of Christ and his gospel, the comforts, the comforts of which were able to lift the believing soul above all the injuries men could, conflict, could inflict. So it was agreed that if that were true, while he was tied to the stake, he would raise both hands in the air. So the day came. He was taken to the stake. The wood was piled around him. It was lit. And the flames began to engulf him. During this time, he lost the ability to speak. However, even while his frame was, was shrinking down, he threw one hand up in the air. And he threw a second hand up in the air. And he clapped three times. That is the same God available to you and I. The same God who can give us power through prayer. The awestruck multitude just stood there speechless. Because they had remembered the promise that he'd made. Yes, God will give us the courage to face whatever difficulty or trial is going to come our way. Please pray with me. God, we're standing here on the precipice of a new year. We have no idea what could be coming. We have no idea what turns our life may take, but what we do know is that you are unchanging and that you are there and that we can fully trust and depend on you. And we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to be supplied to our lives. And Lord, we trust you and we love you. And I pray for everyone here that they would never neglect the opportunity to call out to you and to trust you. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.